So turn with me to Genesis 23. And while you're finding Genesis 23, let me kind of tell you what we're going to be doing this evening. What I'd like to start with is I'd like to take you briefly to eight funerals. Funerals of people you've read about in the Bible, people you'll meet someday if you've placed your faith in Christ in order to spend eternity with God and and His people. We'll spend most of our time at the first funeral. Genesis 23, verse 1. And Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. The first funeral is that of the beloved wife of Abraham, Sarah. Sarah was 127 years old when she died. She was married for many, many decades to Abraham. She died in Kiriath Arba, later to be known as Hebron or Hebron, in the land of Canaan. That's the geography we get here. She died after decades of marriage and adventures together with Abraham and what adventures they had. Traveling the land of Canaan together, witnessing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, being visited by the Lord himself and two angels, near misses with various kings who had their eye on Sarah, and the highlight of their old age, the miraculous birth of their son Isaac. Abraham loved Sarah, and her death was a blow to him. He mourned for her, he wept for her. The land they were in, Canaan, had been promised to Abraham by God. Genesis 17, 8, God said, And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. But keep in mind that although Canaan had been promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, he hadn't actually taken possession of any of it yet. He didn't own any of it. Abraham, though, was determined to bury Sarah on land he owned. And so Genesis 23 records the event in which he purchases the cave of Machpelah from the Hittites who owned it. They made a pretense of giving it to him. Oh, you're a great prince. We'll give it to you. But they ended up charging him what was likely an exorbitant price of 400 shekels of silver. Now, remember that in the ancient Near East, specific place names are are known and used for hundreds or even thousands of years. So those names change over time. There there are multiple names. You could have one town that exists literally for 3,000 years. The cave of Machpelah was in the area of Kiriath Arba, also known as Mamre, just north of Hebron. So essentially, when you say Kiriath Arba or Mamre or Hebron, you're speaking of the same location. And just to put this in geography, Hebron is just 13 miles southeast of Bethlehem. And so it's just one really long walk from Bethlehem. And now the very first piece of Canaan that Abraham actually owned, he buries his beloved wife there in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. Abraham lived another 38 years after Sarah died. He remarried and he had more sons with his wife Keturah. Turn to Genesis 25. 
but that the patriarchal old age of 175, Abraham himself died. Genesis 25 gives a detailed official record of his funeral, his burial. Genesis 25, verse 9. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham bought from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. There's total precision in this record. He's buried on the one piece of land that his people own. Abraham's son Isaac was 75 when Abraham died. Isaac lived another 105 years. Turn to Genesis 35. Genesis 35 records that Isaac died at the age of 180. actually outlived his father by five years. And the record of that funeral includes who attended the funeral and where he was buried. Genesis 35, 29. The last verse in Genesis 35 Verse 29, and Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man and full of days, and his sons, remember the twins, his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Two verses earlier, verse 27, records where Isaac was when he died, and presumably this is where Jacob and Esau buried him. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Isaac Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. We go to another funeral. Isaac's beloved wife, Rebekah, she died. Her death isn't recorded in Genesis, but her funeral is. Jacob declared in Genesis 49, 31 that he buried his mother, Rebekah, where, verse 30 of Genesis 49, in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan. Isaac's son, Jacob, had two wives. Rachel, his true love, and Leah, her older sister, you recall, she was foisted upon him by the sister's conniving father, Laban. But Leah gave him six sons, including, by the way, Judah, who would be the ancestor of David, the ancestor of Christ. Leah's death isn't recorded, but also in Genesis 49, it says that Jacob buried Leah in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan. Jacob's love, though, Rachel... She died giving birth to just their second son together, Benjamin, and she's buried near Bethlehem. She died while they're traveling. Now, the Bible doesn't give a reason why she wasn't taken to the family tomb, but she's less than a day's journey away, still in Canaan, just 13 miles or so from the cave at Machpelah. Very, very close. If you haven't gone there yet, go ahead and turn to Genesis 49. So far, there's a family tradition that's very clear. Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel's the only exception, all buried in the only place Abraham, the father of the future nation of Israel, the only place he owns. But it seems like that era is coming to an end. It's not going to be possible anymore. Isaac's son Jacob would end up living out his final years in Egypt under the protective care of his son Joseph. So Jacob lives in Egypt many hundreds of miles away from Canaan in an era where that's a a journey of months. But Egypt was a lovely land. They were given the, the, the righteous, good land of Goshen. It had been good to Jacob's family. 
He didn't live to see the coming enslavement of his descendants after Joseph's death. So why not just be buried in Egypt? Why not start a new tradition? His whole family was there. They could visit the grave anytime. They could bring flowers every year and so forth. Why not just go there? Well, Jacob left specific instructions. Genesis 49, 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. So he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to them. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. That's a, a euphemism for I'm about to die. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial site. And so the, the boys who weren't always obedient, they obeyed their father one last time. Genesis 50, verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. Indeed, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for his possession as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. Are you clear that the record is being very precise? It repeats the same thing over and over again. Who owned it? Who Abraham bought it from? Where it's located? What its names are? But Jacob is buried someplace that realistically none of his family could ever visit. There's one more funeral, but this funeral would be delayed by hundreds of years. Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, who had risen in God's providence to be second only to Pharaoh in mighty Egypt. Genesis 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This ends the book of Genesis, and it's at least 300 years later that this is fulfilled, since Joseph was 110 when he died. Jacob's family and the growing nation was in Egypt a total of 430 years. Exodus 12 tells us this. So the hundreds of years go by, and the, the body and now the bones of Jacob of Joseph rather just in this coffin in Egypt. But as Israel is escaping and leaving Egypt in the Exodus, Exodus 13:19 says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from you with you, from here with you. Now, you might expect Joseph to be buried where? In the cave of Machpelah, but he isn't. The people of Israel carried Joseph's coffin around them with them for 40 years. And after the conquest of Canaan, Joseph, Josh, Joshua rather, 24, 32 says, Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the portion of the field which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 kesetah, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. But I want you to know this. Joseph is buried in the only other piece of land now owned by the family before the conquest, land which his father Jacob 
had purchased centuries earlier. So the same principle applies. The desire to be buried in Canaan, on land, owned by the family. Joseph's burial came centuries after his death. It was that important to him. Can can you imagine that? Saying, I want to be buried somewhere, and even if it takes 400 years, you will wait to bury me in this place. Now, why did these major family members of Abraham and Abraham himself insist on being buried in Canaan? Why are these eight funerals so very important? Well, what we're doing tonight is we're in the middle of what I think is actually the most challenging miniseries in our entire journey concerning the millennium. And that series is Alternate Views of the Millennium. And tonight we're going to examine the methods of amillennialism. Amillennialism, as you recall, is the belief that there will not be a literal kingdom of Christ on earth. As the uh, highly respected amillennial theologian Cornelius Venema states in no uncertain terms, quote, the millennium is now. And the reason that this might be the most challenging miniseries, and perhaps this is the most challenging message in the miniseries, is it has the highest potential to have what I call the who cares factor. The who cares factor is what preachers try to avoid at all costs. To have you in your brains going, who cares? That sermon is lost at that point. But it's important in our bid to defend the historic premillennial faith that there is a kingdom of Christ coming to earth which will occur between the current age and the final state of eternity. You have to honestly assess the predominant view of our day, amillennialism. And so tonight we're looking at the methods of amillennialism. Now, I think if I just started a dry lecture saying, here are 57 things you need to know about the hermeneutics of amillennialism, I I think this would have a high who cares factor. But I'm asking a favor of you. I want you to keep in your minds and in your hearts those very real life eight funerals. Keep those in the back of your mind because I'm going to return to the question I asked. Why did these major family members of Abraham and Abraham himself insist on being buried in Canaan. We're going to come back to that. But for now, let's put on our proverbial thinking caps. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to cover four topics related to the methods of amillennialism, how they arrive at their conclusions. And then we'll come back to answer that question about the eight funerals, because the answer to that question is also the answer to the question, who cares? Or why does this matter to me today? Four topics. Here's the first topic. We're going to get a little technical, but I I believe in you and I believe you can do it. The first topic we'll call the unbridgeable gap in methods. The unbridgeable gap in methods. The central feature of the debate around millennial theology is the question of how Scripture is to be interpreted. The methods used to gather truth from the Bible. The basic difference is that of using a grammatical, historical, literal interpretation versus using a spiritualizing approach when it comes to prophecy. Now, I'm going to give more clarity on this in a little bit because our amillennial brothers, I want to be very clear about this, they do not spiritualize the entire Bible. They don't spiritualize all of Scripture. We would have a much bigger problem with this if they did. They don't do that. But I want to address this word spiritualize just briefly. And first of all, just to define spiritualize. What, what does that mean? You might be saying, well, we're, we're spiritual people. Shouldn't we spiritualize everything? 
I'm using this in a technical sense. To spiritualize a scripture means to give a text a meaning that supersedes or overwhelms or moves beyond the literal meaning of the text. That there's a, a higher, more secretive, more mysterious meaning to it. Specifically, when we're talking about this in the millennial debate, spiritualizing refers to taking promises given to national Israel and applying them now to the church age saints in a non-national sense. That, that, we're, that we are, as the church, the new Israel, as it were. We are the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel. And I also have to address this. There, there are all millennialists who, if they listen to this, might take exception to the word spiritualize because it's very close to, to the idea of allegorize. And no Christian worth his salt wants to allegorize all of the Bible. They're two very different things. I'm not going to take time to explain the differences, but let me just say this. To spiritualize, this isn't a term that premillennialists came up with. This is the term that amillennialists came up with. This is their self-description of their method of hermeneutics. Albertus Peters, his last name is spelled P-I-E-T-E-R-S, he was one of the most outspoken and well-written millennial theologians of the early 20th century. And this is what he writes. And, and, and many amillennialists take Peters as one of the heroes of the faith. He wrote this, quote, The question whether the Old Testament prophecies concerning the people of God must be interpreted in their ordinary sense as other scriptures are interpreted or can properly be applied to the Christian church is called the question of spiritualization of prophecy. This is one of the major problems in biblical interpretation and confronts everyone who makes a serious study of the Word of God. It is one of the chief keys to the differences of opinion between pre-millenarians and the mass of Christian scholars. The former reject such spiritualization, the latter employ it. Now, just a little side note here. You notice that in his era, he pits pre-millenarians, pre-millennial uh, folks like us against what he calls the mass of Christian scholars. It's a little subtle hint that if the majority believe something, it must be true. And so anyone that gets offended at the term spiritualizing of Scripture ought to pull back because that's a term given by amillennialists themselves. Now, why is this appealing? And it actually is very appealing to spiritualize certain portions of Scripture. John Walvoord, really one of the heroes of the faith in premillennialism, he wrote decades ago, and this is, this is still true. He said this, quote, Ultimately, its charm lies in its flexibility. The interpreter can change the literal and grammatical sense of Scripture to make it coincide with his own system of interpretation. And that's why there's an unbridgeable gap in methods. In fact, members from both sides of the debate acknowledge that gap. I previously referenced Albertus Peters, the early 20th century amillennial theologian, and his use of the term spiritualizing. He wrote that there, there really can be no reasonable and no fruitful debate between the two camps until the point of hermeneutics is resolved. And that's what amillennialists say. In the premillennial camp, in commenting on the debate between amillennial and premillennial theology, Dr. Boyd Luther observes that the debate is almost impossible to engage in because of hermeneutics. He says this, Because the foundational reasons for their differences lay in their very different interpretive approaches and methods, there really is no way to compare the understandings of various key passages on a truly level playing field. 
Instead, the two opposing interpretive approaches go around and around, finding little, if any, common ground and become more and more entrenched. Somebody asked me, why are you taking a couple of years to talk through the millennium? That's the reason. Because there's no common ground when it comes to looking at Scripture. So we have to overwhelm the odds with logic from Scripture. Let me give you a second topic. We'll call this one the history and practice of a dual hermeneutic. The history and practice of a dual hermeneutic. Now let me give you a simple definition of hermeneutics. It's, it's a system or approach to studying and understanding the Bible. That's all it is. You could use the same term. In, you could use Bible study methods. Now, I'm going to go in later messages into detail on our hermeneutic, how we understand the Bible, and I'll show you that this goes all the way back to how the apostles used the Old Testament. But I won't do that right now. Let me just give you a little history, though. The Alexandrian school of theology, this became preeminent by the 3rd century, very early in the history of the church. And the Alexandrian school came to regard, listen carefully, all Scripture as allegorical as having different levels of meaning, the plain, normal sense of the text is the lowest level. It's the mundane level. It's the the eight to five blue-collar worker level. And the goal of studying Scripture was to attain to this mysterious, glorious, mysterious meaning. And because this method was not only used to fight premillennialism, it caused collateral damage because it harmed all orthodox Christian doctrine. Now, a few messages ago, I, I, I gave you a history of the fact that Augustine is really the initiator of our current version of amillennialism, but Augustine did something wonderful. In the 4th century, Augustine saw the Alexandrian school of theology as very dangerous because they were allegorizing and using uh, all of Scripture in a symbolic fashion. They were making all of it symbolic. And Augustine felt this was going to do massive damage to the Orthodox faith, and he was right. And so he put forward a moderating position. This is a position still held by amillennialists today, that in all historical and doctrinal sections of Scripture, the historical, grammatical, literal method should be used, but only in prophetic portions of Scripture should it be spiritualized. So that was his mediating view. And we can fast forward ahead to the Reformation. The Reformation, the focus was not at all on eschatology. That was really the last thing on the Reformers' minds. The Reformers were fighting for the right for the Scriptures to be in the hand of the common Christian like we enjoy today for the doctrine of justification by faith. They were fighting for the individual priesthood of all believers in Christ. They were heroic and they were historic in their defense of the Bible as the sole authority instead of the Roman Catholic Church asserting themselves as the authority. They defended the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. We owe so much to them. But during the Reformation, eschatology and certainly debates about the millennium, these were kind of side notes. Literally, reformers were sometimes, in some cases, running for their lives. They didn't have time to sit down and debate what's going to happen later. They were pretty concerned with what was happening now. And so it just simply wasn't dealt with at the same level as the all-important doctrines of the sole authority of Scripture and of justification by faith alone. In fact, it was fairly customary among the Reformers that in things that didn't seem to matter at that moment in, in, in a sense of 
uh, urgency to simply accept Roman Catholic teaching where they didn't immediately discern any error. Remember, almost without exception, what were the reformers? They were all Catholic priests. And so they, they had a love for the Catholic Church. They had a love for the people. And they didn't wholesale just chuck out all the Catholic doctrine. Now they did accept, uh, they did make one exception about eschatology, the end times. They corrected the idea of purgatory. They said that's not biblical at all. But generally the reformers didn't have time, they didn't make the time to do an in-depth study of eschatology. Instead they simply kept the eschatology of the Roman Catholic religion and that's amillennial. Now, this shouldn't be construed as criticism of the reformers. They, they are heroes. We owe them so much. They highlighted the biblical gospel for the whole world. They began what today is still regarded as the greatest spiritual revival in history. Great, tremendous men such as Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, so many others, they were amillennial. So, this is a very natural thing. If you follow Reformed theology in those incredible key areas of bibliology and soteriology, the study of salvation, ecclesiology, the study of the church. It's natural to follow them in eschatology, the study of the end times as well. But history shows that the eschatology of the Reformers is largely copied and pasted from the Roman Catholic view of the end times and of Israel. And I have to say, both in history and today, I would agree with the fact that amillennialism is very appealing. It has an appeal to it. Amillennialists, the reformers and their successors, have stood for a, a high view of Scripture, a high view of God, a high view of Christ, a high view of Trinitarian theology, of the proper administration of the church, of the sobriety and glory of worshiping God together. I, I've often said, and I believe this, that you... You never, or rarely, or never, have seen an amillennial, seeker-friendly church. Because they're serious about the things of God. It's also an appealing belief system because it's relatively simple. How do you describe amillennialism? Everything happens at the end. That's it. All the end times events happen at the same time. The Christian's job then is to live faithfully until the return of Christ. At which time all judgments, all resurrections, all renewal, new heavens, new earth, everything all takes place at one shot. That's very appealing. It's very now centered in the sense of live holy lives now. And add this, unfortunately, during the Reformation, premillennialism was mostly represented by small groups who were a little bit wacky. They were a little bit nutty. Small groups who went to ridiculously, uh, ridiculous Efforts in their fanaticism, they discredit themselves at the same time that the amillennial reformers are enriching the whole world with the biblical gospel and a high view of God. And so that, that is unfortunate. If you met the typical uh, dispensationalist or premillennial uh, theologian during the Reformation, you would say, that guy's off his rocker a little bit. That doesn't mean what they believed was wrong, though. And I want to be very clear about this. Our amillennial brothers and sisters do not spiritualize all of Scripture as a rule. We want to be very accurate about that. Reformers such as Calvin were extremely opposed to the wholesale allegorizing of Scripture. The Reformers taught that generally speaking, the Scriptures ought to be interpreted with the historical, grammatical, literal method. They did, though, keep the spiritualizing method when it came to prophecy 
because they felt that was the only way to be faithful to what they believe the New Testament teaches, and that is the replacement of Israel by the church. So they actually had a very righteous motive, and that was to retain the inerrancy and authority of Scripture because they believed that read at face value the Old Testament would contradict the new, so they felt you must spiritualize the old. And so amillennialism has developed two methods for interpreting Scripture. The spiritualizing method for prophecy and the literal method for other scriptures. Boyd Luther states that amillennialism, quote, uses a dual hermeneutic interpreting all of scripture literally except that which deals with Israel and the church and difficult predictive prophecies. So that's kind of the history and practice of amillennial hermeneutics. Let me give you a third topic. It's a third topic. I want to just walk through a few popular arguments against a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. Popular arguments against a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. This is a massive topic. I wasn't even certain whether to try to include it. Entire books have been written on this, so I can't recreate that whole debate tonight. But what I can do is just give you two or three highlights. Let me give you argument number one. And I'm, I'm quoting from an amillennial theologian And they tend to write in complex language, so forgive this argument. The Old Testament can be interpreted literally unless a literal interpretation would produce a contradiction with the non-symbolic New Testament books. In that case, then you spiritualize the Old Testament text. I'll repeat it, and then I'll translate it. The Old Testament can be interpreted literally unless a literal interpretation would produce a contradiction with the non-symbolic New Testament books. In that case, then you spiritualize the Old Testament text. In other words, you're fine to interpret everything in the Old Testament literally unless it seems to contradict a book of the New Testament that isn't completely symbolic. So how do you answer that? Well, first of all, non-symbolic books. That's code language for all the books of the New Testament except the book of Revelation. And amillennialists classify Revelation as a symbolic book. Revelation contains symbolism, to be certain, but symbolism contained in a book doesn't give broad permission to avoid anything that's clearly literal, and symbols always represent a reality. Uh, just out of curiosity, if you were guessing in your mind, 66 books in the Bible, how many of them contain high, high levels of symbolism? 66. Some more than others, but all the books of the Bible contain symbolism. By saying it's a symbolic book, that's a way of putting an asterisk next to Revelation and saying doesn't count. Now, the problem with this is that this argument's based on a on an assumption, a presupposition that the future literal earthly reign of Messiah is a contradiction to the New Testament. There's a major problem with this because that's saying that any Old Testament text or the book of Revelation, the symbolic book as it were, which contradicts my theological system must be spiritualized to fit my system. Let's take this to a bigger view. That only leads to one conclusion. That any challenge, any interpretive issue is solved simply by spiritualizing the text. Making it mean something it didn't mean. Making it symbolic of something other than what it says. Premillennialism has a, a, a list of verses that 
potentially conflict or contradict premillennialism. You know how long that list is? Zero. There's not one verse in the Bible that has a problem with premillennialism, and if it did, then we would choose the verse, not our theology. There's no need to reinterpret or qualify any Old Testament texts. Here's a second argument, and I'll give it to you in a moment, but I want to take this argument directly from the pen of one of amillennialism's most preeminent theologians. His name is Dr. Cornelius Venema, and I quoted from him earlier. He wrote what is really the, the landmark eschatology or, or theology of the end times for amillennialists. It's called the promise of the future, and it's really the gold standard for amillennial theology. Every reformed uh, covenantal seminary in the country, it's required reading. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Dr. Venema. His life has demonstrated a shepherd's heart, an evangelist's heart, a pastor's heart. He has a singular devotion to the authority of Scripture. He's a good brother with whom we will politely and lovingly disagree. Here's his argument, and I, I'm quoting from him. Argument number two, quote, Especially when it comes to the prophecies of the Bible that relate to the earthly people of God, Israel, dispensationalists insist that these be read literally. Let me say that one more time. Dr. Venema says, quote, Especially when it comes to the prophecies of the Bible that relate to the earthly people of God, Israel, dispensationalists insist that these be read literally. Now, I'm going to, I think we can dispel that argument pretty easily. I would add that the reason we dispensationalists insist that these prophecies be read literally, because we insist that all of the Bible be read literally. We're not picking on one area. Just a little side note here. Dr. Venema leans heavily on criticizing dispensationalist C.I. Schofield, who published his landmark dispensational work, the the Schofield Reference Bible, in 1909. Schofield was a pioneer in dispensational writing, but he had views that that we would all disagree with today, which further study and scholarship has helped us refine. But Venema presents Schofield as representing all of dispensationalism, essentially ignoring over a century of scholarship. In fact, in his long chapter on the hermeneutics of premillennialism, he explains Schofield's view that the coming millennium is for Israel only and the church will be in heaven. There isn't a single dispensationalist alive today who believes that. We don't hold that. I don't know anyone who does. Venema says this is what he calls a classic dispensational belief. Now, why does this smell just a little bit? It smells because he is presenting all of us as believing this when, in fact, none of us believe that. Let me give you a third argument. And I'll borrow this argument again from Dr. Venema because he so aptly represents the amillennial viewpoint. And in case you think I may be doing the same thing as he does with Schofield, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson writes in the foreword of Venema's book that this book is, quote, comprehensive in terms of dealing with the amillennial viewpoint. In other words, he declares that Venema accurately represents the whole view. Here's the argument, again from Cornelius Venema. Quote, The New Testament repeatedly refers to the Old Testament prophecies and promises made to Israel to the church. Did you catch that? The New Testament repeatedly refers to the Old Testament prophecies and promises made to Israel to the church. 
Now, I don't have time to go into this, and the, the point of our series on the millennium is not to examine replacement theology, sometimes called supersessionism, in which the church supersedes Israel. But this particular claim by Dr. Vinema that the New Testament repeatedly applies Israel's promises to the church, after saying the word repeatedly, he gives precisely one example. Galatians 3 and 4. So give me just a moment here. Galatians 3, 6, and 7 says that all who come to faith in Christ are sons of Abraham because he was saved by faith just like we are. We would obviously agree with this because faith is the only means by which anyone has ever been saved. Galatians 3, 16 demonstrates that God made promises, Genesis 22, to Abraham concerning his seed, singular, referring to Christ. And again, we would agree with this in that Christ is the one through whom the nation promised to Abraham would be blessed and through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant. And God promised Abraham that this seed would possess the gates of his enemies. This is one mighty king who will rule his enemies. Galatians 4.28 calls all who are in Christ, quote, children of promise, just like Isaac was the promised child of Abraham. The context here is that Paul is asserting that Christians are under the new covenant, not the old, that we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. We are children of promise because God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through his seed, through Israel, and through Christ. We agree with all of those things. But none of those statements in Galatians 3 and 4 can be construed to mean God is done with Israel forever And the church is now the recipient of the promises of God instead of Israel. It can't mean those things and it doesn't say that. One more little side note. It's one of the reasons I I like Dr. Venema because you can see his heart. Remember that he stated, I stated this earlier, he said that when it comes to the prophecies of the Bible, dispensationalists insist that these be read literally concerning Israel. That was his statement. And I've struggled to understand something. I've struggled to understand how our brother, Dr. Venema, 150 pages prior to saying that the promises of Israel are fulfilled in the church, this is what Dr. Venema states, and we would agree with him wholeheartedly. He's commenting on Romans 11.26, which says, So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is what he says about Romans eleven twenty six. The most likely reading of this passage teaches the future ingathering and conversion of the totality of the people of Israel. Welcome to premillennialism. This does not mean necessarily that every individual member of the people of Israel will ultimately be saved, agreed, or that all members of this people will be converted at some future time, agreed. However, it does suggest that the Apostle Paul taught that the time will come in which a fullness of Israel will be converted and engrafting again of Israel as a people, a restoration of this special people of God to gospel favor and blessing. This is exactly the conclusion you would come to if you just read the Old Testament literally. And so he contradicts himself. I, I don't know how he reconciles this except to say that I believe that Dr. Venema is a man of God who believes that God keeps his promises. In fact, the the title of his book is The Promise of the Future. I think you can already sense that there are dangers to this dual hermeneutics. So that's my final topic. And then we're going to go back to those funerals. 
Topic number four, spiritual dangers of a dual hermeneutic. Spiritual dangers of a dual hermeneutic. The first danger we'll call the lack of a standard practice. The lack of a standard practice. Here at Grace Bible Church, we like to, in various venues, teach people how to study the Bible. And we have a method. It is called the historical, literal, grammatical. You can put those words in whatever order you want. Meaning that history matters, grammar matters, and a literal taking of the text matters. Can you imagine if we taught a day-long class on here's how to study the Bible? And then at the end we said, or you can say that a text means what you want it to mean. What? Because what's your first question going to be? Which scriptures do I interpret literally and which ones do I interpret spiritually? Because now Pandora's box is open to decide with a wide variance of opinion. One theologian said this, quote, the spiritualizing method once admitted is not easy to regulate and tends to destroy the literal method. It's true. Really, the only standard practice is that anything in the Old Testament which could seem to indicate Christ reigning on earth in an intermediate kingdom with a restored Israel, you have to spiritualize that. That's the only standard rule. Now, let me do an example for you. Let's assume for a minute that prophecy is interpreted with this spiritualized hermeneutic and historical narrative stories is interpreted with a grammatical, historical, literal approach. Let me read you from Genesis 12. We may as well use the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read to you. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go forth to the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Question, is this historical? Well, God commands Abram to leave his homeland, to travel to a land called Canaan, Abraham does so. He picks up, packs up his family, rather, and his possessions. He travels the hundreds of miles to Canaan to be shown the land that will be his. Is this historical? Yes. So how should it be interpreted? Well, according to Augustine, historical scripture is to be interpreted literally. Except, of course, for the part right in the middle of the historical narrative where God says he would make Abram a great nation who would possess this land. And of course, now the reiteration of these promises all throughout Genesis confirms that it's not just a fluke, it's not just a one-time thing, but amillennial Bible study methods forces you to spiritualize right in the middle of the historical narrative. To say, these verses get interpreted literally, but right here it's spiritual, now it returns to literal. Who makes that decision? Here's another danger of dual hermeneutic. The inconsistency of interpreting prophecy. The inconsistency of interpreting prophecy. Amillennial theologians do not apply spiritualization to all prophecy, only where it's necessary to contradict premillennialism. For example, prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ are taken literally. If Jerusalem or the land of Israel 
is meant to be symbolic in passages concerning the rule of Christ, that that's really symbolic of the church, why isn't the prediction of Christ coming from Bethlehem in Micah 5 verse 2, why isn't that taken symbolically? Why isn't that spiritualized? Jesus expected the Jews to be able to know who he was based on taking Old Testament prophecy literally. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walked with two men. He hid his identity from them. They spoke to him about the things which had just happened, how Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified, and that some women were saying that they saw the resurrected Jesus. You remember how Jesus responded in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In other words, he expected that from the Old Testament prophecies, they should be able to know exactly who he was. Passages such as Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 that deal with his death and resurrection. Why would he not have the same expectation concerning Old Testament prophecies of his second coming? To take those things about the future with the same literalness Jesus expected of his disciples. Here's another danger. And now this is when it gets really serious. The theological disaster already seen. The theological disaster already seen. Beginning in the 19th century, liberal theologians began to spiritualize a lot of texts. They spiritualized the resurrection of Christ. It wasn't really a bodily resurrection. They spiritualized the miracles of Christ. They weren't really miracles. They spiritualized Old Testament miracles, things like creation, things like the Red Sea, everything that seemed to be gloriously supernatural, they spiritualized it as meaning something else. You know where they got that method? They got it from amillennialism. Theological liberalism denies all supernatural occurrences in the Bible based on the same method of spiritualization. When you open Pandora's box, it's pretty hard to close it at that point. There's another danger. The wrong beginning point for interpretation. The wrong beginning point for interpretation. Amillennialism begins with its own belief system. That's its starting point. It's borrowed from and continued from Augustine and the Catholic religion and approaches Scripture with those assumptions. By the way, they would argue that dispensationalists do the same thing. Well, you bring your theology to the Bible. No, there's a big difference. You ready for this? Listen carefully. No one becomes amillennial simply by reading the Bible. No one becomes amillennial by simply reading the Bible. You have to be taught by great men with degrees from universities to be amillennial. Our instinct is to read and believe what we read, isn't it? One of my professors in seminary said that the Bible, the truth of the Bible, is the safest in the lapse of the church member because you don't have time to go, hmm, I wonder if this means what it really says or if it says what it really means. No one becomes amillennial spiritualizing Old Testament texts simply by reading the Bible. I'll give you an example. If you read... Zechariah 8, 22 and 23. It says, So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, In those days, 
Ten men from every tongue of the nations will take hold of the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. If you, as just a regular person reading that text, decided I'm going to make some observations as to what it says, what conclusions would you naturally come to? You would conclude that Yahweh will be in Jerusalem. Why does it say that? Why would you come to that conclusion? Because peoples are coming to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem. You would conclude that probably the most likely nation Jerusalem is going to be located in would be where? How about Israel? You would conclude that a day is coming when nations will favor Israel. That's never happened. You will conclude that Israel will be seen as the way to know God and that Jews will be the most popular people on earth. The amillennialist says, well, that's speaking of the church. So are the promises made to Israel really now for the church? Let me ask you that question this way. If the promises for Israel are now really for the church, if we spiritualize Old Testament prophecy, we all believe that Christ is returning. Amillennialists, premillennialists, we all believe that. And that's our glorious, uh, our glorious commonality. We believe Christ is returning. But if God has taken the promises he previously made to Israel and now switched them over to the church, let me ask this question. When Christ returns, where should he return? How about Rome? Where the church once thrived as the central hub of Christianity in the apostles' day. Well, of course, now Rome is the site of the most horrific pseudo-Christian cult the world has ever known, the false religion of Roman Catholicism. So maybe Rome won't work. How about Wittenberg, Germany, the site of the beginning of the Great Reformation? Now, of course, Germany is also the site of the beginning of liberal theology, the question of the authority of Scripture beginning in the 1800s. To this day, PhD students in theology are required to learn German so they can read liberal theology. That won't work. How about London? I've been to London. It's the site of the greatest church on earth in the mid-1800s, the Metropolitan Tabernacle of Charles Spurgeon. It's the site of David Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 1930s through the 60s, the greatest expositional preacher of the early 20th century. But of course, London is now one of the most godless, irreligious places on earth. There's only a handful of biblical churches in a city of nine million. How about Los Angeles? We're, we're getting close to home now. The site of the 20th century revival of expository preaching through our brother in the faith, Dr. John MacArthur, who reignited expository preaching around the world. Of course, not five miles away from his pulpit was also the site of the birthplace of the revived charismatic movement beginning in the 1960s, which spread like wildfire and has hurt the church immensely, now with 500 million followers so we got to mark those off the list but if israel is replaced by the church where is christ returning the bible tells us zechariah 4 verse 4 and in that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives which is in front of jerusalem now hang with me because i'm going to completely shift gears we're, we're going suddenly into reverse here i want to ask you a question did the ancient peoples of the Bible have a belief in resurrection? Did they believe in bodily resurrection? Did the ancient faithful worshipers of Yahweh believe that they would die and be resurrected by God? 
The ancient God worshiper Job said in Job 19, 25 and 26, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. What is that? A Redeemer on this earth, Job on this earth, both in human bodies. What about Abraham? We know he believed in resurrection, Hebrews 11.19 affirms that Abraham believed in resurrection. Let me shift gears again. Keep that in your brain. We also know that Abraham took a walk once. It was a long walk. It was a significant walk. Genesis 13, verse 14. Don't turn there. Just, just listen. Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Now listen to this. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and lived by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. Does that sound familiar? Why did Abraham bury his beloved wife Sarah in Hebron by the oaks of Mamre in the cave of Machpelah? Why was Abraham buried in Hebron by the oaks of Mamre in the cave of Machpelah? Why were Isaac, Leah, and Jacob buried in Hebron by the oaks of Mamre in the cave of Machpelah? Why was Rachel buried just 13 miles away? Why was Joseph buried nearby on the land his father Jacob bought? You remember my original question? Why did these major family members of Abraham and Abraham himself insist on being buried in Canaan? Here's why. Because they believe that when God said to Abraham, I will give this land to you and your seed forever, he meant it. You want to know why they wanted to be buried there? Because they wanted to be resurrected at home. They wanted to be resurrected at home. And for Joseph, it was important enough to wait 400 years. And it's with the same assurance that God meant what he said when he said it, And up to now, we take our confidence in the same truth. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. God will raise Abraham at home and he will raise you up in the same way because when God says he's going to do something, he never alters that promise, ever. If the church is the new Israel, then how do I know that the promises I just read to you from John chapter 6, the promises of Jesus, how do I know that those aren't going to be altered? But because God is faithful to men and women 
who were so intent on being resurrected in their coming homeland that they literally had their bodies moved hundreds of miles to be there. If God's promises to them are true, then God's promises to you are true. That to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord and that someday there will be a day when you are raised incorruptible. So you see, this is not just a dry theological debate. This is a debate over what will you believe at the moment your heart stops. Do you believe that God will keep his promise? I do. Because he keeps all of them. He keeps all of them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time. I I pray, Lord, it's been useful to us. I thank you that we, and this is really an almost unfathomable thought, we hold in our hands the very mind of God, a Bible that is written in language so simple that a, a child who's just learned to read can begin to comprehend the grand truths of God. That while we are thankful for our teachers, we are thankful for our pastors and those who have taught us the word of God, Hebrews thirteen seven says to be thankful for them. What we are mostly taught, Lord, is that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We are reminded that we may open our Bibles, we may breathe a prayer asking for help from the Holy Spirit, and we may read, believing that what you say is what you mean. Oh, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that we need not reinterpret obvious Scripture to fit some system, but that we may believe you. We may believe you. You are a promise-keeping God. We thank you and praise you for a Bible that speaks what it means. In Christ's name we pray, amen.